Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Trey Garrison. He published a book November 5th, 2021, which I just finished this morning. The title of the book is Opioids for the Masses, Big Farmers' War on Middle America and the White Working Class. And he wrote it with Richard McClure. Right now on Amazon in the United States, it has 11 five-star ratings. I highly recommend the book. Very interesting. He takes a first-person look, actually travels around kind of the wasteland of what happened with this uh, opioid epidemic, crisis, poisoning, mass genocide, but he can talk about that. He actually starts off the book, which I will repeat as a quote from the Bible, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad, 2 Corinthians uh, 5, 11, I think it is. Um, but Trey Garrison, welcome to the show. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. William, thank you so much for having me. Um, and I, I do want to give credit, um, Richard McClure, my writing partner on this, and the man who's, it was really, this book was his idea, and he he funded the entire project. Uh, it was also his decision on the dedication and, and the, uh, the the opening quote, and I thought that was the most appropriate for what we had done. I think you're right. And for people who may not know your background, maybe you can bring Richard into this as well. What kind of influenced you to write this book, Opioids for the Masses? Well, um, it was a confluence of events, um, some happy uh, accidents, I guess you could say. Um, Richard had always had this uh, desire to, to, to write a book like this, um, but he is in the, he's in the tech industry. Um, uh, he does not have the time or you know the background necessarily that he wanted to do this. He's a great writer, don't get me wrong, um, but this was like his brainchild, and he was so passionate about it that on multiple occasions, I had to ask him, are you not telling me, did you have a family member who uh, died from this, who succumbed to this poison? And he said, no, it was really just out of an, you know, a concern for, you know, what he was seeing, this epic crime being committed against uh, the working class, against middle America. And we happened to, through a mutual uh, acquaintance, we uh, got hooked up. I'm a, I've been a writer for about uh, 25 years. Uh, I've worked for uh, both daily newspapers as well as magazines. And I was at a point in my life where uh, the idea of spending nine months, maybe a year on the road sounded great because what we wanted to do was not just go into this and cite some statistics, make a few phone calls to some experts and maybe drop into a place once or, you know, for a weekend or something to get a little bit of local color. We really wanted to embed ourselves in the communities and in the lives of people who were, who have been most hit by this, who are on the front lines trying to deal with this, who are recovering from it. So you know, this was a, a great opportunity to go through the parts of America that were hit hardest by this, the Rust Belt, uh, Appalachia, uh, the South and the Midwest. And it was it was an incredible journey and it really opened our eyes and the book kind of unfolded organically. We uh, after the first place we visited, we realized what we had was more than a story about the effect on individuals um, or just about policy. This was a story that was basically a crime. You know, a town had been murdered is what the way we felt about when we got to Jasper, Alabama. And so we said, well, you know, we're going to do all the research. We're going to do this deep research. We're going to talk to the experts and we're going to present this in a journalistic fashion. But we're also going to write it in the sense of like a murder mystery. Like saying you know, like you're going through the suspects and saying who is responsible for this? Who is really the, the culprit here? And in the end, it was turns out it was Murder on the Orient Express was the best guidebook because in that, if, for anybody who hasn't read it, everybody on the train was guilty of the murder, and every you know everyone 
from the regulators to the big pharma to the doctors to the pharmacist to the politicians who should have been providing oversight all of it the journalists who just you know ignored this problem for so long and still ignore it everybody is guilty yeah it really is incredible and you that said the country that you traveled through the appalachia you talk about the where the three states come together very beautiful country but also kind of like some of these cities look like they are got hit by a neutron bombers. There was very dark elements of that that involved the opioid epidemic. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, one of the places I spent some time in, uh, extensive time in, was Huntington, West Virginia. Small town, um, I think 50,000 residents total. And the murder rate in Huntington, West Virginia is as high as it was in Detroit at the time when I was there. And it's all, And it was all fueled by the opioid crisis there because something like I'm, I don't want to fudge my numbers here, but it's been like two years, three years since I was there. But I believe uh, their their opioid overdose rates um, were the highest in West Virginia. And at the time that we were there, they were the highest in the nation. And so all this violence was gang violence predicated on um, guys come down from Detroit, of all places, because that's what they call them, the D-boys. And they were the ones who delivered the product, whether it's the pills, the heroin or whatever else. Right. So it's 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 being distributed through all of these kind of not obviously huge towns, but smaller rural communities. You you talk about the Scots Irish and the coal mining. Can you talk about kind of the topography of where what was happening prior to this epidemic that started 20, 25 years ago? Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. This is actually beautiful country and some of the best people I've met. Um, But it is very troubled by this. And what we you have is the um, big pharma started out in the or not started but made it their plan in the mid 1990s when especially when they came out with OxyContin, which was a time release version of an opioid, to target doctors and pharmacies and all that in these areas these areas where you have people doing blue collar jobs that often involve stress uh, repetitive stress injuries. You know, like, you know, coal mining is hard work. It's, it pays well, but it's very hard work and it's very physically taxing. And so you're going to come home and you're going to have back problems. You're going to have all these injuries. And so you go to your doctor and he says, here's this medicine. It's great. No, don't worry. It's not as addictive as all these other pain pills that came before. And so you're not thinking of, I'm, I'm, I'm doing drugs. You're, you're being prescribed medicine by the guy you trust, your doctor. And the big pharmaceutical companies were aware of this and they knew what they were doing. And you can see it in the emails that were revealed that were revealed in the big uh, lawsuit that wrapped up uh, in September of last year with Purdue Pharma. Uh, you know, they were talking about how they were targeting these, what they call pill billies, you know, um, making jokes about, uh, you know, the, 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 these, you know, all oh, well, it looks like the, the, the toothless rednecks in Kentucky have, you know, are kind of figuring this out. They're going to be starting to go to other States to get this. They knew what was going on. And so, yeah, we, we approached this, like I said, as a, as a crime, but we, we knew it was more than just the big pharmaceutical companies. They paved the way. Right. I mean, so and the uh, Purdue and the Sackler family, family were like the big bad guys that people could focus in on. But there were some lesser figures in there. Janssen Pharmaceuticals, subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson, Indo International, Teva. So there's a, just this huge what people could call big pharma putting out and really kind of changing the environment of what it was to be a drug. To me, they're drug dealers. They're actually worse than a drug dealer on the street that gives uh, one drug to one person because 
they set up the environment where million. I mean, you talk about the amount of pills that are sent out, but these what's staggering? Can, yeah, staggering. Can you talk kind of? They, I mean, I learned something from this book. A fifth vital sign. What's your pain register? Like, so they're they're putting it in people's minds that now we have a solution for any amount of pain you have, right? Yeah. See, the Sacklers. And if you wanted to talk about the history of how this kind of developed prior to the, the 1990s, the Sackler families they came over from uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, Jewish family immigrated here, bought up their first pharmaceutical company, and spent the next 20, 30 years. Um, perfecting the art of marketing uh, medication at a time when, you know, advertising by pharmaceutical companies was 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 restricted. Right. Um, the idea of television ads or or magazine ads for for specific medicines was just insane. Um, because it they is knew insane. It's happening yeah. now, and it's insane. But sorry. Yeah. yeah sorry. No, it's okay. So they um, Sacklers were the pioneers of like the marketing in the '60s for like Mother's Little Helper, the Xanax pills, and and those kind of pills. And then they also uh, very sneakily bought out, they would buy up um, medical journals and staff them with their own people. And lo and behold, here's this article about how you know, we're not prescribing enough for people's pain. We're not taking pain into account enough. And hey, this these drugs right here, these are the next generation of opioids. They're not as addictive. They're time release coded or you know whatever nonsense they're peddling. But slowly and steadily, they started having an impact on the medical industry. Between that and then those, you know, the, the five-star resort golf getaways that they'd host for doctors and pitch them on the, the products, um, they really just monetized and financialized and commercialized and mass-marketed opioids and other prescription drugs. And that's sort of why we took the – and I noticed on the screen we have the uh, the cover of the book. The the, the graphic designer who came up with this, this idea um, – you know, she, she based it on those takeaway sacks that you get at every Chinese restaurant, every, you know, uh, small mom and pop store that looks like that, because this was about mass marketing of medicines or, or rather drugs disguised as medicines that they knew what the effect would be. And they predicted it when they got the approval for Oxycontin. They said it was going to uh, it was going to blanket the country in a white snow. Wow, yeah, that's incredible. Like they, they they say, I mean, it launched OxyContin launched 1996, so relatively not that old. 35 billion in revenue by 2017, so huge amounts of money. And the amount of pills, you said, I think there was 12 billion opioid tablets prescribed in 2013 alone, off the yeah. charts. Just incredible amounts of drugs. Yeah, and it's when you start looking at this, the numbers are staggering. Um, one of the things that uh, Richard and I first started talking about was. Uh, at the time, it was this was early 2019, and the most recent number uh, year for which statistics were available was 2017, and that was a peak year, 47,000 opioid overdose deaths. And we thought, my God, um, that's almost as many as in 10 years in the Vietnam War. Right. Um, the next year, it slightly declined, and the next year, it slightly declined again. We're not talking you know much, but you know 5% here or there. But with COVID and the restriction, and you hear about these deaths of despair, the depressions people went into, and they couldn't go to their meetings, um, they skyrocketed. The most recent numbers that are out, they came out, I think, just a few weeks ago, we were that for 2020, there were 68,000 opioid overdose deaths. 68,000. And since 1999, there's been 500,000. We're on track for, at this point, easily a million people by the year 2030. And here's the thing you got to take into consideration with this. This is the thing that's the most messed up. We're seeing the spike, a 30% spike 
in just a couple of years in opioid overdose deaths. At the same time, almost every first responder at every level, at small towns, big towns, doesn't matter where, has Narcan on them. And they are able to successfully, you know, if they get there in time, to get somebody out of overdose so they don't die. So we're actually having even more overdoses and more overdose deaths at the same time that police and paramedics are armed with what they need to save these people's lives. Right. So no, we're so actually masking how bad the problem is almost. Right. Right. You're right. And I mean, it's interesting. So, and we can quantify this in deaths, which are terrible, but the the kind of reverberation or the, the, the waves that come out from a death and the effect is very intense. And you talk to a lot of people firsthand, judges, uh, cops, and like the cop said, he's almost like not even in law enforcement. He's in law enforcement and health management, right? Because yeah. there's so many opioids. Well, there were a lot of good things that came. I mean, I don't want people to think this is a book full of, uh, you know, just depressing black pills about the state of all this. Uh, it, it tells the truth. It points the fingers at the right people. But there are all and, – and while we tell some really horrifying stories, there are some really good stories of hope. And among them are things like the – you have young police officers, the guys who you expect to usually be macho and, you know, got to get those arrest numbers up. They're telling me we can't arrest our way out of this. This has to be a holistic approach. We have to have more treatment. We have to have, you know, uh, the, these companies were able to flood this poison into our communities and, and they did it with the, with the uh, okay of the government. So, it, you know, we don't just need to be arresting these people. We need the government to help us get treatment for these people, get these people out of the cycle of dependence. And again, it sounds like a like a bleeding heart liberal type of guy, but these are like younger like sheriffs and, and cops that are on the front lines of this and they know and they're not just being like soft hearted about this. They know that this problem is much bigger than just something they can throw you in a jail cell and, and they're done with the issue. Right. Because the recurrence uh, recidivism rate or continued use of opioids is very intense. And you talked about some of these things. There's like deviate kitchen. So people are trying to do use a different approach. Yeah, because the old approach just doesn't work. Arrest and pun punitive punishment just doesn't work, right? Yeah. Now, and um, uh, there was a place. Uh, it, it wasn't like I said. Uh, we, we wanted. To, we saw that these the impact of this was not just on individual lives, but on entire communities. And the, the first place we visited was Jasper, Alabama, or one of the first places. And I spent about a month there, I think. And um. What I learned was uh, this was a coal mining town, even though it's Alabama, you don't know, always think of that as coal country, but this is North Alabama and it, it actually is part of Appalachia. And up until the 1990s, there was a, a going concern with a, they had, they had a, a coal mine there. It shut down because of whatever was going on with the energy markets at the time. And that had a huge impact. This is a, a city of uh, a town of 15,000 people, I think. Um, I think about 90% white and it just absolutely depressed this community um, you know, because the jobs there, I think there were something like 500 direct or 750 direct jobs at the time in the nineties, as well as another thousand of ancillary and support jobs. So this was a significant portion of this community's economy and it shuts down. Well, flash forward 20 years, whatever was going on with the energy markets, uh, some coal company came in and said, Hey, we can reopen this coal mine. We need 500 uh, men who you know can can do coal mining, and we're going to restart this. And that was going to you know 500 direct jobs. How many you know another thousand maybe indirect jobs? Just a huge boon for this community. They couldn't find 500 people to pass a drug test. Wow, yeah, it's incredible. Yep. 
So it's just a really, it's an epidemic. It's a chemical weapon assault. It's just something different that, and the government really should be blamed for allowing this regulation to, to uh, be allowed to take place. And I actually was reading through your book, thinking about some of these uh, gene therapy, untested things that were done by the government that people have, are mandated to take while I was reading this, like the government just dropped the ball. Wouldn't you agree with that? Oh yeah, there's 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 no reason anybody should have faith in our uh, healthcare system or our health policy that it somehow <coughs> excuse me that it somehow is looking out for you, the average American. It's not the uh, the pharmaceutical companies. The NRA is the big bad guy to the left because of the money they spend on state and the federal lobbying. Um, the big pharma actually spends more in the state legislatures where most of the regulation is done on on these matters than the NRA does. Um, so you can't look to the elected people to, you know, really want to change things. And that's why for every one step forward, they, they come up with um, centralized databases that any healthcare doctor or pharmacist can look at to see your entire prescription history so that, you know, it limits your ability to doctor shop. That's a great step. Most states have that now. But then you have two steps back where they say, well, we're not going to we're basically going to, you're going to need to get a referral from your primary care physician to a pain management clinic. And somehow that little step right there is going to cut down on doctors who are, you know, the doctor feel goods writing too many prescriptions. Well, now you've just created another business, the pain management clinic. And its job is to hand out as many pills as it can legally do so. Right. And again, this was as a result of changes that were supposed to be reforms, but these bought and paid for legislators, yeah, we'll, we'll fix this over here and then open up this other floodgate. Right. And they had, like, I mean, the Sacklers or whatever, Purdue started the pain care forum. So they were constantly trying to manipulate not only D.C., but just, just the whole environment to think that uh, OxyContin was was benign, right? Yeah. Well, like you said, uh, you said at the top, um, they, uh, the American Pain Management, or the American Pain Institute, um, it was basically funded by the by Purdue Pharma and came up with these phony baloney papers and policy positions that first pushed the idea that your fifth vital sign, besides your pulse, your breathing, and that, and that sort of thing, your blood pressure, should be pain. Like, how much pain do you feel? Um, they also lobbied and, and got businesses or, or these uh, big corporate uh, healthcare companies that own all the hospitals to make part of the checkout system for you as a, as a discharging patient is to go through a survey of, did the doctor take care of your pain? Um, do you feel like he sufficiently was sensitive to it? Th those kind of questions. And it could actually affect reimbursements. So of course the hospital has an incentive to make sure that you are as doped up as, you know, they can legally let you be so that you can't complain, even though you went in there with a broken leg and guess what? Life is pain sometimes. Right. So there's always something there for you to get, you know, your pills and it just it just pollutes the, whole, the entire system. And it also the cost to the states is very significant. The cost overall per year in the states is in the billions, right? Absolutely. Um, we, we're talking about healthcare costs. We're talking about opportunity costs. We, we're talking about wage loss. We're talking about, like I said, how do you con how do you really measure what happens, you know, what you lost when a community can't get 500 able-bodied men to pass a drug test. And so this thing that would have been an economic boon for your, your town um, just can't happen now. And, you know, what have you lost there? What, what's uh, there, there's so many costs. And then of course there's law enforcement and incarceration. 
there's all these costs associated with it. And I talked to one cop uh, in a suburb of Cincinnati and he was, you know, he, he was literally doing everything he could for his little 10 square mile jurisdiction. But he said, these are my 10 square miles. I can't go and do anything about China, you know, bringing these the, the fentanyl and, and, and illicit right. pills in through Canada or through Mexico. I can't do anything about, you know, what's crossing the border. He said, this is why, you know, the, the government, the federal government is what needs to step in because it's costing the states. It's it was a failure on the regulators part. And yeah. It's, I mean, it could, it, I mean, there's a big question is why was it a failure of regulation when something's that toxic? How did they let it go on for so long? There's a lot of questions about D.C. Um, but I think one of the stats that was really shocking to me was you, you included in your book. It's not a lot of stats, but the West Virginia spends eight point eight billion a year, which is 12 percent of their GDP on opiates. That is so off the charts. It's an incredible loss of opportunity. And it's just, uh, people I thought people don't realize, I think at least I didn't how vast and severe the crisis really is overall if you took a broad angle wide angle view it's off the charts it's really off the charts it it's is it's in it it's 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 really the opioids is what i focused on but it's almost symptomatic of what's really wrong in the sense of you have i think it's 70 percent of americans are on some kind of prescription medication um not all of them are painkillers obviously um but they're medicating with antipsychotics, with antidepressants. They're having to take medicines to deal with the other ways they medicate themselves, whether it's through overeating, uh, smoking, drinking, whatever other you know uh, illicit escapes that they they seek. When you have seventy percent of your population on uh, prescription drugs because they're trying to escape reality or dealing with the consequences right. of trying to escape reality, you have a societal problem. You have a sick society. It is making people ill in the head. I mean, and, and physically. So, you know, I guess in a way, uh, with everything, that, you know, the, the way they have deracinated the country, the way they have uh, taken away, you know, taken God out of the, the uh, courthouse and out of the schoolhouse and out of society, I, you know, you're going to get a society like that. But it wasn't just a natural evolution. This was done by policy and it was deliberate. It was the Purdue is the, uh, the, the big bad. But there were, like you said, so many others that were all part of the scheme to push the idea that these drugs are okay, that no one should ever have pain. In fact, these drugs for chronic pain problems are really great, even though they know that there's a, a diminishing return over a longer period of time with using these drugs. And so you have to have more and more to, to get the same effect. Right. It was just, it was all in, in pursuit of the almighty dollar. Right. And I mean, it was disregard yeah. for the people that they were hurting middle America and the white working class. They just didn't care. There's no follow through about anything about the consequences of the drug. There's nothing. They actually were just as bad as any drug dealer. You noted in your book that they had some kind of voucher or thing where they could get a free prescription. The first things. So they were sending out just like a heroin dealer, right? Oh, absolutely. That's what yeah. these people are. Yeah. That That's the, what's the, shocking. I think that that's what Americans have to, disabuse themselves of is these people were using a corporate shield to just deal drugs as bad as anything out of Colombia or anybody like that. Like, and it's shocking that there was no criminal consequences. Like I just, it just blows my mind. Oh, right. there's, there's actually a criminal. Um, they, in the, in the agreement that was set in September of last year, but which um, I think has actually been um, it's on appeal right now, but it was a bankruptcy agreement. 
And part of it, aside from letting the Sacklers ship a whole bunch of money off uh, offshore before this you know deal was ever worked out, it also and you know I think the the company and the family had to pay a few billion dollars out of the literally twenty billion dollars that they made, and then they were indemnified from further civil or criminal liability. These oh, are man. these are drug dealers who have killed five hundred thousand Americans. Right, and genocide. It's genocide. It they is. genocided people. Yeah. These people should be frog marched to the gallows after a trial. That's I mean, that's unbelievable. And it's, it just goes to the cor the corruption in D.C. Like, how did this happen? Like, it's just uh, the country is so corrupt. It just makes me sick that they could do this and get away with it. And I think that during the time, like these people were suffering and dying, they were living it up in France. Like they were living like, you know, the life of the one percent in France. I think, or at least part of the family was. So it's just, it's so sick. It's such a sick, disgusting story. The, I mean, Sacklers are one example. All these other people were making money too, right? Oh yeah. Well, and, and then you also have you know the doctors who should have known better. We've known that uh, opioids. Uh, the, derivative, the derivative of opium, all classes of it. We have known that it has been addictive since before Alexander the Great. I mean, this this is, goes back to antiquity. We have put our foot down uh, in the 1800s to get rid of it because it was more rampant and widespread uh, in the me medical field. And of course, you know, they were actually prescribed cocaine and stuff like that back then. So, you know, it was it was what it was, but it can be cracked down upon. It can be limited. They can actually do something about this. But they these people went in not as street drug dealers, but as respectable. And so the doctors should have known. The pharmacists who are filling these ridiculously, staggeringly large numbers of, of pills should have known. The policy experts, the, the, the regulators, somebody should have rung the bell at some point, but no, there was all too much. It was, it was, it was a good ride and uh, there was money to be made. And you know, it's great. And, and, and then you have the media who does not really care that much about the white working class. Um, they can't, and, and you have, on the other side, you have conservatives, uh, conservative Inc., Republic, the Republican Party, which can't even admit that white people exist except to point a finger at them. So they can't say, you know, here's a problem that is disproportionately affecting white people and more needs to be done about this uh, because they'd have to admit that white people exist as an, you know, as an interest group. But didn't they, I mean, didn't the Sacklers or some of these corporations get busted specifically targeting these cities? Like they knew that this was the optimal place for their drug, right? Well, like some of that came out. Yeah, some of that came out during the during the trial. And a lot of, uh, you know, one of the, I, I met a lot of heroes in this journey. Like people who are helping people get over addiction. The cops who are like taking that extra step to try to actually better the community instead of just, you know, uh, throwing people in jail and, and leaving it at that. But there are some uh, states and uh, city attorneys general uh, who have really you know brought to bear what meager resources they have at the state level to go after these big multi-billion dollar corporations. I mean, some of these corporations have bigger budgets than some of the states that sued them. Right, right, yeah. Um, and so, you know, they knew that their people were being targeted. So, you know, kudos to like the attorney general from Kentucky or from uh, West Virginia. Who, or I think the, I think there was a city attorney in Cincinnati who, and I don't want to take away from anybody else who's been leading the crusade on this, but like some of those, some of those attorneys general um, really stepped up and were trying to protect their people, and so they they get to pa pass on this. They, they weren't the legislators who let it happen. Right. Yeah. So you list a lot of those people in the book, and then you also list the bad guys. Like there are some of these names, like the Rock Doc, Catherine Hoover. Like they just didn't even care. They didn't care that their product was poisoning people, did they? Oh no, it was. I mean, 
so many of these people, I mean, like the, the, in that one list of that little rogues gallery of uh, from the operation, it was a federal uh, drag net over three state area. And that's where some of those uh, individual stories of the arrest came from. These doctors uh, weren't even at their clinics. They were having their staff sign these or, or uh, fill out prescriptions that they had already signed. Right. Uh, they it, had, had no care and concern. It was it was a money making operation. And you actually sent kind of a, a friend of yours into one of these clinics to see if they could end up with some narcotics, and they did. Right, first first go. Yep, and uh, it really, I mean, it should have every alarm bell should have gone off, every red flag, um, uh, for you know when presented to that doctor. But nope, we specifically did pick that doctor because he was one of the more proliferate um, pers- uh, opioid prescribers in Lexington, Kentucky, at the time. So, again, I, I'm not a doctor, and you know somebody else can say whether or not he violated any kind of medical ethics. But it's just I was the point of that anecdote that in that in the book in the story is to show you just how easy it is to get pills despite the supposed crackdown. Right. And there and has I mean, been a crackdown. I'm sorry, I was just going to say no. there has been a crackdown, and the the original pill mills that we you know we learned about in the early 2000s and the going through the early 2000s, um, a lot of those have been cleaned up. And the problem there is because they crack down with enforcement, which is good, but really didn't put any more resources into treatment. You have people who now can't get their pills, and where do they turn? They turn to the street. They turn to stuff like heroin. So you have people who, you know, in the hollers of West Virginia and Kentucky who two generations ago, one generation ago, if you had shown up there with heroin and a needle, they'd run you out of town on, you know, with a shotgun. You know, they might have had their moonshine or their marijuana. But they weren't going to take, you know, that, that's drugs right there. That's that's city stuff. You get this out of here. But after 20 years of getting, being in this quote unquote medicine, and now they can't get it, heroin use has skyrocketed in Appalachia because of this. Yeah, I think you said the pill peak was 2013. So it's on a kind of a decline. There used to be like, I saw a documentary about them, people driving. You mentioned this in your book, a story of a guy going to Florida and getting pills and driving it back up. Those got shut down too, right? Florida kind of put the Florida put the did a pretty there. good job of putting a kibosh on, but there's still pill mills down there. I mean, I was, I was in Pensacola, uh, just a, a couple months ago, drove by a place with a family member. And I was like, why is this parking lot so crowded? Like, yep. Pill mill. And wow. you can tell there's all these, these, really, there's a look that addicts have and they're always kind of like, just like looking for any opportunity and there's a sadness to them. And you could just see it. I, I, I guess I, I learned to see it when I was doing the research for this book, and now I can spot it a mile away. But yeah, that's exactly what this was. You could tell it was uh, this doctor who was supposedly a, I think she a podiatrist or something like that. But wow. practicing until pill mill somehow. Wow. And then whole families have been wiped out. You talk about the Miller family, like the just one overdose death after another, getting shot by the cops. So just the culture and the environment was like a plague. Like. You call it, I think that the phrase you use is maelstrom of crime and despair. Like, it just is incredible. Yeah, these are people, they kind of give it up. I mean, they're addicted. Um, they, they're they kind of, they don't have a sense of identity. Um, they're told every day in the media that people like them, that look like them, are, you know, poor by trash or, or they're the problem, they're the cause of all the problems in America. And, you know, they see nothing but negative portrayals of themselves in the media. Um, you know, they they're told they're picks and rubes and dumb Christians and this and that. And, you know, you don't have job prospects because all the jobs have been shipped overseas. 
all the you know jobs that would have been you know all the unions have been destroyed so there's not any protection for jobs what else are you gonna do you might as well get high i'm not excusing i'm just saying that that's the mindset that a lot of them have right and you, and you had people that I, I met a woman who um was running a women's treatment center um a halfway house she, you would have never known it to look at her she looked like a 30 year old you know ex-sorority girl you're very prim and proper and professional and she had done time as accessory to murder because her boyfriend dealer had shot someone and she had actually been taught by her parents when she was uh like 12 years old how to fake injuries when they go around to all the different doctors that they visited so they could get prescriptions wow. so she was in it from age 12 she was hooked wow that's incredible and, and you talked about a 13 year old who took some pills and a OD. I'm mean, just uh, terrible stories. Just wreckage. Just these kid people's lives are are tainted and destroyed just by this drug, whether it's them or somebody they know. Right? Like somebody gets buried. I uh, one thing I noticed very early on, and I kind of kept a tally of it. I um, and when I was on the road for this, the nine months that it took to do this, when I was off duty, you know, I'd just go to get a coffee or go to the bar and have a drink or dinner or whatever. Uh, go to the laundromat. You know, I was living out of hotels near Airbnbs. Anytime I'd interact with people and they said, oh, so what are you in town for? And I'd tell them you know, about the research I was doing for the book. Every one of them, every single one of them told me about they had either someone in their family or someone they knew had overdosed. This touches so many lives and touches. I mean, it's it, I can't believe we're still in shock that more people don't talk about this. It's still not a, you know one of the main topics. This thing is eating away at the fiber of middle America. Right. And it's weird, too, because it seemed to the epicenter was right there where West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, like somewhere around there was really where it was because it does permeate through all of society. But it seemed to have hit that area the worst because it was already kind of economically depressed. Correct. Would you agree? Yeah. So that was really kind of it. So Absolutely. Yeah. It's, 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 it's all wrapped up in that whole the concept of the deaths of despair. You know, no, no job prospects, no sense of identity no sense of you know a connection to the where you are or your community people don't know their neighbors um and then you have stuff like you know this covid nonsense that comes along and puts everybody in isolation um yeah i mean, I mean it just made it even worse but you know people were already in despair people are hurting in these in these areas and that's you know that's part of why they were targeted and they were such good marks for this predatory industry um trey we are at 35 minutes do you mind taking a few questions oh sure absolutely uh, Gameplay asks, has Big Pharma suppressed health information such as losing weight and exercising to deal with pain, mental health problems? So is this like, the, like you know how they corral you down the sales line, like this is your solution, this bill? I think so. I mean, I, I that's what I was talking about earlier with uh, a lot of people are on prescription drugs to deal with the, the other ways that they're medicating people overeat or they, you know, drink or, you know, they have some kind of vice that affects their health. And instead of like quitting that vice or being told to be healthier, eat less, eat healthier to, to get out and, you know, jog, get out and exercise, get out and, you know, do something physical that will affect your mental health as well as your physical health. No, we're just going to give you a pill. Here, take this. That'll solve That's, your problem. Yeah, it doesn't big matter. Pharma, it's Rockefeller yeah. drug, big pharma, pill, make us money. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been yeah. around for 100 years. How can I, as a pharmaceutical manufacturer, make money if the doctors are telling you, hey, exercise, eat more protein and vegetables and less carbs? You know, I can't make money off that. 
Right. I can I can make money if I can if I can get these guys to give you a pill. Right, and get you hooked. Right, give you the free pills, and then you got to yeah. take more to get high. And yep. uh, man, I'm on the gravy train. And it's interesting because something happened like that with heroin because even the name heroin, it's derived from the word heroic. So they sold you know these opiates a hundred years ago as you're going to feel heroic, and then there was a whole you know addiction problem. People said, hey, this is a problem. We got to get rid of this opiates. It's addictive. It's not good for people. And they got rid of it, and then it pops back up under you know a huge corporatized entity like Zach uh, Purdue or something like that. So it's it's weird that it came around again. So, but I mean, I think DC is really has to be a major part of it with the deregulation and not overseeing this and getting lied to it, thinking that it was some kind of, you know, non-addictive drug is a joke. Yep. Um, do you, did you see any connection between Purdue and the latter Afghan heroin, China fentanyl problem? Well, I don't think it's, um, any coincidence that, uh, you know, not long after we, uh, went over into Afghanistan that you started seeing the numbers going up. Um, it wasn't like a one-to-one, -one you know, like that was our supply. It was just, oh, hey, well, guess what? We have a new supply of uh, opium opium poppies um, for this very in-demand drug that we have. So let's make sure to, you know, use military forces, U.S. military forces to protect these opium poppies. And, uh, you know, so we can import them to make these pills. Right. Trey, we're at about 38 minutes. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before we wrap up the discussion about your book, Opioids for the Masses? No, it's available on Amazon.com, but also on uh, through the publisher directly. It's actually 15% cheaper there. It's AntelopeHillPublishing.com. That's AntelopeHillPublishing.com. And I really appreciate you having me on to talk about this. Obviously, it's, it's, a, it's a passion for me. And I, I just I want people to start paying attention. This is, a, this is a direct attack on our nation, on our people. If... I told you that last year something killed 68,000 Americans and I called it, uh, let's say I called it terrorism. Do you think I'd have a problem getting funding to deal with that problem, to, no. to fight back against? No. But no, this is bleeding the very people that the media elites, the, uh, the, the bi-coastal people, uh, the, the ruling elites, all of them. The, these are affecting people that they don't care about. They don't. They have to treat them like serfs, like uh, expendable serfs, I think, and like some kind of weird feudal system, is my opinion. So it's just a, a tragedy. Again, great interview. Excellent uh, job and really good job on the book. Title of the book, again, is Opioids for the Masses, Big Farmers War on Middle America, and the White Working Class, published November 5th, 2021 by Trey Garrison and Richard McClure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, William, for having me on. And I am going to get that book in the mail to you, the, the physical copy. Awesome. Awesome. Cool, man. All right. Thanks again. Stay there. All right. Stay there. Bye.